Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Louisiana Fish Fry, because life needs Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. Aside from stirring the pots in my kitchen, there's nothing I love to do more than set the table. Fine china and crystal, earthenware and artisan glassware, it doesn't matter what you have, it can all be transformed into a personal expression of your welcoming hospitality. For inspiration, we've collected together some of the nation's finest tableware experts on this week's episode. First, we chat with Susan Gravely, founder of Vietri, the lifestyle company that has brightened American tables with artisan-crafted Italian dinnerware for the past 40 years. Susan discusses her life lessons in setting a stylish table and the book she penned to celebrate Vietri's anniversary, Italy on a Plate. Then, John Stuart Gordon offers his thoughts on the role silver flatware played in the dining rituals of the 19th century. John has the unique honor of curating American decorative arts at the Yale University Art Gallery, creating for himself the perfect marriage of passion and career. Finally, we hear from Antiques Roadshow appraiser Nick Dawes. Nick's expertise gives him a remarkable view into the lives of people and their ancestors through the relics that they bring to the show. His visit to the historic New Orleans Collections Antiques Forum gave us the opportunity to tap his vast knowledge of ceramics and glass. It's time to set the table on this week's Louisiana Eats. For Susan Gravely, Southern hospitality has always been a way of life. Her father worked in North Carolina's tobacco industry, which meant that her home and family often played host to business associates from around the world. She recalls the welcoming environment her mother carefully curated for their many guests, from setting an elegant table with heirloom dinnerware and arrangements of flowers from the family's garden, to preparing the perfect menu, highlighting seasonal cuisine, and local favorites such as pecan pie. It's no wonder Susan eventually opened an importing business that brings beautiful hand-painted Italian dinnerware to American tables. She's also written a book that details her journey from tourist to international businesswoman. My name is Susan Gravely, and I am the editor of Italy on a Plate, Travel Memories Menus. Susan, you are all of that and so much more, because on the cover of the book, right under your name, it does say, 
Vietri founder. For that very reason, I am so thrilled and honored to have this conversation with you. Thank you for having me. And that was a really, really lovely introduction. Named for the Italian town in which the dinnerware is created, Vietri changed the way America dresses tabletops. It all started in 1983 on an airplane to Italy, where Susan, her sister, and their mother happened to meet a gentleman named Fabio Puccinelli. Fortunately for them, he would later turn out to be a well-connected member of Florentine aristocracy. It is the first trip to Italy on that flight which was Alitalia because we wanted the entire Italian experience. We were sitting in regular class, and it was my sister, Frances, who went up to business class, just sashayed right up, <laughs> waited in line, and met this Italian gentleman named Fabio, who was mesmerized by her saying that she was going to Italy with her mother and sister. He came back, he met us, he gave us his business card and gave us restaurants in Rome to try and said, oh, when you're in Florence, please give me a call, which we thanked him. He left and we shook our heads and would never have called him. However, we tried his restaurants. They were divine. We went down to the Amalfi Coast and stayed at a beautiful hotel called Il San Pietro, which my mother had torn out of her Bon Appetit or Gourmet magazine in 1979. And we fell in love with the dinnerware, which after three days, we decided through some New York guests at the hotel who said you should design and wholesale to start a company. Well, after we left Positano, we went to Florence. And in 1983, you only traveled with cash or traveler's checks. And off we went to buy a gift to remember Italy. Mama was treating us and her pocketbook was stolen. She was pushed by a motorcyclist. Mm -hmm. And there went all of our passports, all of our money, all of our traveler's checks. And with that, Mama said, remember that nice man on the plane? We need to call him. (laughs) Which we did. And that was the beginning of eight years with Fabio leading the way with starting Vietri. Well, this is such an incredible story because that dinnerware that you saw at Il San Pietro on the Amalfi Coast, I believe that it's largely the pattern that for us Vietri fans came to know as Campania. Is that correct? That's exactly right. Campania means country. It's also a section in Southern Italy called the Campania region. And it was a series of animals or flowers or birds around the border of the plates in different colors. And some of it was in the United States. But when we went back after that May in September and designed our first pattern of it, we brought it back 
exclusively to the specialty store business and started VHRE because of it. And and what a specialty store business you started because yeah. you don't get any more special than Neiman Marcus. That's right. Neiman, <laughs> Neiman's was a, a, an amazing story because when we realized we were bringing in all these plates the next March, I found out about trade shows. I didn't even know about trade shows. And then we found out about the tabletop show. And during those years, the independent small vendors who didn't have permanent showrooms would show at the Prince George Hotel in New York. I found out the name of Mr. Gene Wolf, called him, asked him if he had a space, which he said no. And I lied and said I was going to be in New York the next day. And could I please bring the plates that I had a container full coming and just show him and could he just squeeze me in? Well, he said yes. I flew up the next day, <laughs> you know, to, to meet him. I went with my 12 plates. I flew up and he said, if you make the column next to the registration desk look great, I'll give you 10 by 10 feet and you can show there. So I called all my friends People brought tables and chairs and and accessories for Hutch. And the very first day of the show, Neiman's came. And those were the years where they wrote orders. They sat down and wrote a $12,000 first order. And that order became the first order we ever shipped that next March. And they have been a top account of ours for 40 years. Well, of course, this business. So <laughs> your sister, Frances, your mother, Lee, and you. Well, you and your sister were very young women at the time. And we were. you were making this whole thing up as you went along. How in the world did you even figure out how to start an import business? How did you figure this out? That's a good question, Poppy. I, th I think that uh, the first thing is I've always loved notebooks. And so I carried around a spiral notebook and a glue stick everywhere I went. And we just started asking questions. You know, Daddy, again, had been in the import-export business of tobacco, and I knew that it was possible. I just didn't know how. So we called Sarid. I don't know if you ever remember Sarid, which did home furnishings. They were in oh. Wilson mm -hmm. and asked if I could talk to them. They told me about freight forwarders and customs brokers, and they told me, that the closest containers were coming from Norfolk. So I got in the car and went up and met a customs gentleman and talked about duties. And step by step, we figured out how that product would be boxed, put on a container, would come to Norfolk, and then we needed to find a place to place it. So we ask a beautiful store, Southern Season, the owner of that in Chapel Hill, and he had extra space and we rented from him. And on March the 14th, 1984, my mother brought friends from Rocky Mount. I got 
Moorhead scholars, which are kind of English scholars that, that would come to the University of North Carolina, and they came. And then I went to the bus station and hired everybody I could find that was standing around the bus station to unload our first container of dinnerware. And the next day, we shipped to Neiman Marcus. Well, that is pretty amazing. But <laughs> if I'm correct, you were often in Italy doing the packing too, right? That's Tell right. me about this entire hands-on operation that um, three strong, smart, brave women managed to pull together. Lack of knowledge is a lot of power at times because you just have to try and you have to do what you need to do. What ended up happening was Frances had two young children and she was at home. So our office was in her house. My mother was her entire life, the cheapest employee we had because we never paid her. And she would come up and they, we hired one young fellow to help um, ship what we had. And we created an inventory system. And I would go over to Italy to find new products, but more importantly, get the Solimeni factory in Vietri Solmari to ship our product. We were finding that. We weren't getting the product on time. We weren't getting it correctly. So I flew over, stayed for three weeks, and got up every morning and was boxing our plates, pre-packed by four, over and over to get them out so we would have inventory. I suspect that what we are talking about here is really the beginning of a word that's commonplace now, tablescape. You yes. were creating some of the original American tablescapes. Yes, I, th I think you're right, Poppy. It, it was about creating an environment of welcome on your table that became part of your look, your style, what felt right for your home, for your entertaining. And we, you know, since we had focused in a, on Italy and our mission and vision was always about being around this table, we focused on adding things that complemented each other so people could pick and choose to create their own tablescape. Susan, had any of you all ever studied design? How in the world did you know what you were doing? Well, I came from a mother who loved setting a table, loved entertaining. I always was interested in color and shape and you know we we were southern we loved our home we loved fabrics and my mother had such a beautiful eye she was a beautiful dresser that it was something that was part of our upbringing it was always about a home it was always about being together and and creating something gracious and warm and inclusive.
That was Susan Gravely, author of Italy on a Plate and founder of Vietri, celebrating 40 years of dressing America's tables. What is the difference between stoneware, earthenware, and china? Stay tuned, and we'll answer that question when we come right back. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Crystal Hot Sauce, now celebrating 100 years of hot sauce deliciousness. Always made with just three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt nothing artificial. Crystal hot sauce. Step out of the heat and into the flavor. From Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways, Rouse's Markets tastes like home. And from Camellia Brand, beans done right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. Camellia is celebrating their centennial with innovations for today's lifestyle. Beans for two. If a bag of beans is too big for your family, Camellia's New Orleans-style red beans for two and Cajun-style white beans for two has everything needed for dinner in today's smaller households. Learn more at CamelliaBrand.com. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. What is the difference between stoneware, earthenware, and china? To begin, we have the Chinese to thank for all three. They began crafting articles from earthenware back in the Paleolithic era. That was the Stone Age. Their earliest efforts baked at lower temperatures, which is still a hallmark of earthenware today. Earthenware isn't a good choice for dinnerware, though, as it's highly porous, so you can't put it in the dishwasher, and it actually can't be washed with soap, as the soap will be absorbed into the plates. Stoneware was a much better choice. Firing stoneware at higher temperatures produced a product that was less porous, didn't need to be glazed, and was substantially more durable. But that wasn't enough for the Chinese. They went on to develop porcelain china and bone ash china. These products are thinner and less opaque. In fact, the finest porcelains are translucent. But no matter which you choose to set your table with, make sure to serve some good Louisiana Eats.
fascination with antiques can easily lead to obsession. John Stuart Gordon is a prime example of how this fascination can also lead to some of the most compelling treasure hunts. John has the unique honor of curating American decorative arts at the Yale University Art Gallery, creating for himself the perfect marriage of passion and career. During the Historic New Orleans Collections Antiques Symposium in 2016, I discovered that John and I share a mutual obsession with antique silver flatware, an investment in beautiful design that can be used every single day. Everybody knows flatware. We use it every day. We have a personal relationship with it. Of all of the objects in the world, it probably comes into the closest physical contact with us. And it's a kind of exciting to think about where did these forms come from and how did this ritual of dining emerge in the mid-19th century? Because we have such close connections with these objects. And even though they were popular more than a century ago, we still feel quite passionate about them. Where did your uh, fascination with this begin? It began by not understanding what these strange things I saw were. Funny implements with prongs sticking out the sides, things with, that had handles that clamped down. And being a child of the 20th century, we didn't have things like asparagus tongs and macaroni forks and when I grew up. So I just started kind of exploring what on earth these things are. And this story unfolded that was really wonderful and complicated. They are little microcosms of all of the goals and aspirations of the 19th century. They're not just for serving food. They're a reflection of where America was and where America wanted to be. And once I drew that connection, I just fell down the rabbit hole because... It's easy to do. There are hundreds of different flatware forms, things that boggle your mind, jelly servers, gravy spoons, dish gravy spoons, which is different than a normal gravy spoon. Going through old catalogs, one company had over 69 different serving forms listed, 23 different kinds of spoons, eight different kinds of tongs, 16 different kinds of knife, and if you go into an antique store now or on eBay or even to a museum, we'll just say knife. But there were 16 options. And we have lost that part of dining culture because for us, a knife is a knife. Tell us about the collection at Yale. And what are the sort of things that were there before and that now you are steering the collection towards? I am so lucky because it's an extraordinary collection. The American Decorative Arts Collection was, for the most part, dates to about 1930. It was collected by one Yale alum named Francis P. Garvin. His passion was 17th and 18th century Americana. And we have one of the finest early American silver collections in the world. In the 1970s, one of my predecessors, Charles Montgomery, who had been at Winterthur, came up to the Yale University Art Gallery to take over the curatorship, and he realized the collection should not stop in the 19th century, but should go right up to the present and be kind of a document of American craftsmanship from the beginning of colonial settlement up to the present day. 
So since the 1970s, we have been building the collection forward in time. The part I'm most proud of is building our 20th century collection um, with strongholdings in the 1930s and um, kind of the Art Deco period. And we recently acquired the Swid Powell Collection and Archives, and that was a venture of the 1980s that invited architects to design housewares. So plates and flatware designed by Zaha Hadid, Robert A.M. Stern, Michael Graves, and that kind of brings us all the way up to the present day. Well, let's talk a little bit about some of the rarer marks. What have you come across that you've seen marked on a piece of silver and had to go figure out what that is and where it came from? We're very lucky at Yale. We were given a collection about 20 years ago, long before I got there, of about a couple thousand pieces of flatware, which was a not encyclopedic, but very complete record of almost every 19th century silver mark. I have a lot committed to memory, but luckily I also have our storage where we can go and look up things. So if we find a mark we don't recognize, we, we, we go to the silver vault and pull out the spoons and forks until we can find it. And every once in a while we get stumped. There was a nut service that had come up for auction earlier this year, and I fell in love with it because there were little nut picks and a big serving spoon decorated with squirrels with like an adorable little squirrel perched over the bowl of the spoon kind of peering into the spoon at the nuts that it would want to eat so imaginative and it had a cw mark that the auction house could not identify but it also had um, a patent date so one morning when i guess i woke up feeling a bit more focused than i do normally I sat down and started going through every single patent that was issued that year. And after a few hours of just kind of going through patents, I found the drawing by a man named Augustus Conrad in Philadelphia for this squirrel-decorated spoon. And that led me down a different rabbit hole of going into the ancestry records, trying to figure out who this man was. And sure enough, he's listed in Philadelphia as a silversmith. And then for two years, he's listed in partnership with someone whose last name was W. And suddenly that CW that no one could figure out, that was this very short-lived partnership. So it's fun that even with a great resource like Yale's collection, there's still a lot of marks out there that we don't know. But if you just roll up your shirt sleeves and dig into the archives, you can, you can kind of find them. Are there any holy grails that you're seeking? Always. A curator's life is making holy grails, so, uh, or finding holy grails. For this period, the one pattern we don't have at the Art Gallery's collection is Gorham's Narragansett. And 
I've been in love with it for years, and I've fallen in love with it again during the research for this talk. Just so inventive. Every piece was different. How you encrust the forms with little cast pieces of seaweed and cast crabs and cast shells. And the whimsy of it is just so wonderful. And I think it's a very powerful statement of the late 19th century interest in naturalism, uh, kind of reflects the aesthetic period, reflects Japanism, and ultimately, though, it's located in the American landscape with that name Narragansett for the Narragansett Indians, the Narragansett Bay in Rhode Island where Gorham was headquartered. So it's both kind of eternal and specific at the same time. So that's what I'm thinking about these days. If, you know, if I, I imagine there must not be very much of it. There's not much of it, and unfortunately other people know how lovely it is too. So <laughs> there's not much of it and it's expensive, um, but it is wonderful. So every time I see a piece at an antique store or an auction, I just, I just go and hold it for a little while and that's gonna, that, that'll keep me for now. John Stuart Gordon, Curator of American Decorative Arts at the Yale University Art Gallery. For Christophe Pournay, Preserving antique furniture is much more than a craft. It's a calling. Learning antique restoration at an early age, Christoph has become a revered furniture historian and conservator over the past 25 years. He stopped by our Louisiana Eats studios to share his book, The Furniture Bible, and evangelize the history and gospel of dining room furniture. So I am Christoph Porny. And uh, I am an antique restorer, uh, antique conservation. I've always done that. So when people ask me, where did you learn, where... I didn't learn. I was born in an antique store in France. My parents were antique dealers. So it's in my gene. It's a passion. I try to get rid of it. I tried to get rid of it, you know, to shake it off. But I can't. It's impossible. It always catch me back, you know, so... Each piece really sort of tells its own story, doesn't it? Because it's unique. Everything is unique. And I think it's very important nowadays where everything is standard, normalized. Everything, everything is bought from, from big chains of furniture or as, as good as they are, you know. But everybody should have one piece that is unique, that, is, that you have at home and where you can look at it when you come back uh, at night from work and you're tired and tell you, I'm the only one right now that has this piece of furniture in the world. So what is your favorite style of table for dining? The favorite style of dining table is and has to be a 19th century table. Why? Because this is about the 1850s that really the dining room and the dining experience we know nowadays really, really started to exist. Before, it was a little bit all over the place. People had small tables on the sides. People had uh, uh, rooms that were not dining rooms, the hall, the side rooms or whatever. The parlor initially was a dining room. 
used as a dining room. That's where it started. Parler is the, from the French, parler, mm. to speak. And when the kings and when the royalty, you know, starting not to want to have dinners in this big banquet hall, you know, in front of everybody, they retired to a small room on the side because they could parler, they could speak <laughs> a little more privately, and that became the parlor. Once the parlor, dining, living existed, the two rooms separated. They said, like, okay, wait, we can do even better. One that is going to become the living room, the parlor, and one that is going to be just for dining. 19th century, a room is starting to be designed as a formal dining room, used only for that. And the style of furniture, of course, the table and the chairs, are going to be designed specially for dining. So a good Victorian dining table is the best thing you can have as a dining table. It's sturdy, it gets bigger with nice leaves, it has a mechanism that still can work, it has the right height, it's the right proportions. If you want a dinner, you better have a 19th century table or even later, but they are going to be copied on the same concept. Would you give us a little walk through the history of chair design? Yes. People have always needed to sit somewhere. Weirdly enough, people need to sleep and to eat, but beds have not always existed and dining tables neither. But there have always been seats. So through the evolution of uh, the chair, you really have almost the evolution of humanity and history for the past 2,000 years. For example, if we take three kings that followed each other, Louis XIV, Louis XV, Louis XVI, the one that got his head cut. So, that, <laughs> so it started with Louis XIV, which is a very powerful, absolute, regal monarch that liked things, of course, being a big ego guy, sturdy, ornated, uh, very, very massive. So we have a lot of gilt, a lot of scrolls, a lot of rich materials. The lines are very rich. Then, of course, uh, as always, a kind of a reaction after the death of Louis XIV. Oh, no, uh, enough with that. We want things lighter. We want things a little more refined. We want things that have a little more subtlety. So it follows also in the leg of the chair. The leg of the chair becomes the beautiful cabriole with this beautiful, you know, simple movement and elegant, you know. So that follows. And then after you have Louis XVI, another reaction, enough for the curves and a little more sturdiness, but very, very simple. This is the age of neoclassical. This is the moment where they rediscovered Pompeii, for example. So you have a taste for antique, uh, a taste for simple lines, a taste for like uh, light floral elements. And if you look at the chair, this is the moment where you get the straight fluted leg, uh, where you get straight decorations, stripes, enough of the curves and the, and the elegant lines. So you can really, really, really follow this way. And if you continue afterwards with Napoleon and Victorian age and whatever, you can continue the comparison. Incredible. Christoph, it was such a treat to have you and your great expertise Thank here you. in our Louisiana Eats It was a studio. treat for me to be here. I always love to come to New Orleans and see you every time and uh, talk about furniture and ask you for the best place to eat every time in uh, New Orleans. Christophe Pournay, author, 
of the Furniture Bible. Coming up next, Antiques Roadshow appraiser Nick Dawes joins us to share his vast knowledge of ceramics and glass. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, now doing for chicken what they've always done for fish. Fried chicken tenders, wings, sandwiches, and more. Louisiana Fish Fry has you covered with a mix specially for chicken. Louisiana Fish Fry, because life needs Louisiana flavor. And from Visit the North Shore. Discover world-class culinary flavors on the North Shore this summer. Experience the bounty of the bayou and rich culture from award-winning chefs, soulful mom-and-pop restaurants, extraordinary bakers, and creative mixologists. To learn more, request the Explore the North Shore Visitor Guide for inspirational stories, custom itineraries, and event information at visitthenorthshore.com. St. Tammany Parish, Louisiana's easy escape, just 40 minutes from New Orleans French Quarter. Those of us who are in the antiques business, you can't invite us into your home without expecting us to turn the plates over, look at the marks on the silver, pull the drawers out of the furniture, and all that. For Nick Dawes, every antique tells a story. As an appraiser for the long-running PBS series Antiques Roadshow, Nick's expertise gives him a remarkable view into the lives of people and their ancestors through the relics they bring to the show. Nick is also Senior Vice President of Special Collections at the prestigious Heritage Auction Galleries in New York City. We had the great fortune to spend some time with Nick in 2016 when he was a guest speaker at the annual Historic New Orleans Collections Antiques Forum. His visit gave us the opportunity to tap his vast knowledge of ceramics and glass. To begin, I asked Nick about the Antiques Roadshow and his involvement with the program. Antiques Roadshow, when it began, visited more cities than it does today. In the first season, I believe we visited 12 or 13 cities, making one show from each city. Today, we typically go to six cities through the summer. And from each city, we'll make three hours of, of television with one or two more hours made from the, what's left over. We'll go to a city, usually arriving on Thursday or Friday, uh, have meetings through the day, and then it all happens on Saturday. Everything's taped in one day. I sit typically at the pottery and porcelain table, which is a very highly trafficked table. Everyone has a piece of pottery or porcelain. And increasingly, we find that people are bringing things in 
not exclusively to find out what it's worth, the monetary value. First of all, at Pottery and Porcelain Table, we see very few things of high value. All those big numbers you see on Antiques Roadshow tend to be sometimes Chinese things or paintings, you know. We're, we're the poor relation. The, the, the typical value at, at my table is um, under $20. Most things are under $20. But most people want to know what it is and where it's from. Uh, it very often, if it's something at my table, will be perhaps the oldest thing in the family, you know? And they'll want to know, did this come from Ireland with Great Aunt Mary in 1860 or not? And we'll be able to look at it and identify its origin and its age and, and everything else, and perhaps to either confirm or not confirm a family story. There are literally thousands of experiences I could tell you about, and so many of them are memorable to both of us, that being to the guest who comes and to the appraiser. But I recall a story from, I think it was at least 10 years ago. We were in Savannah, Georgia, and toward the end of the afternoon, these two spectacular African-American ladies came up to the table and they were dressed up for the event. They looked like they were going to church, you know, they had everything, including hats on, really taking it seriously. And I said what I always say, which is, let's see, you know, what have you got? And tell me what you'd like to know about it. And the lady took out a little porcelain figure, six inches high, and this little figure was this exquisitely modeled 1960s Tupperware lady with a sort of A-line skirt, beehive hairdo, not looking anything like the woman who brought it in. And she was holding in her hand proudly a stack of graduated Tupperware. And I said, all right, well, tell me about the figure. And she said, well, I was a Tupperware lady in the late 60s, and I sold enough Tupperware, and they gave me this. And I fell in love with the figure for lots of reasons. First of all, um, my mother was a Tupperware lady in the late 60s in England. And I remember fondly running back and forth from the kitchen to the living room with stacks of Tupperware that she was trying to sell. So I identified with that. But most importantly, from a historical point of view, we see lots of porcelain figures. And the majority of them are renderings of 18th century characters made at any point after the 18th century. They're these sort of historical figures made in Germany mostly or Japan in, in porcelain trying to look more important than they are. And it's quite rare to find what we call a period figure, something that represents the year in which it was made. And this is a critical ingredient in good authentic objects. So here's, a, here's an entirely authentic, quite beautifully and, and exquisitely made porcelain figure from the late 60s, which frankly has modest value monetarily at the moment. But I told her that um, it's one of the best things I'd seen all day in terms of its quality and authenticity. And it represented a kind of narrow but unique window in American history. Um, in terms of what Tupperware was doing and how it was being marketed. Quite an important window in the history of commercialism. So I loved the object, and I was able to give her 
a modest value, but I told her that if, um, if she held on to it and brought it back in about 150 years, it would undoubtedly be valuable. But to me, that was a museum quality object, something that belonged as part of the American story. One of your expertise also falls into the category of crystal, and Lalique is a big passion of yours in particular. It is, and um, I discovered the work of René Lalique, who was the founder of the Lalique Company, really when I moved to New York in 1979. I had seen some of it earlier. I had bought a little piece of Lalique when I was a teenager, but it was really not until I worked in the auction business that I, I discovered Lalique um, and fell in love with it and wrote a book on it 30 years ago. He was an extraordinary individual, a genius in design and manufacturing technique, uh, leading jeweler in the world by the time he was 40 years old in 1900 and could quite happily, I suspect, have continued in that position and led sort of elegant Parisian life, um, but chose to do something quite different, moved into glass making. So all of that legacy of glass that he's left us is very much a second career. And the work of Lalique turns up occasionally at auctions and, and throughout the world of antiques. It's always fascinating to me. And I've, I've built much of my career around Lalique. Is there some holy grail of a piece that you know exists but that you've never been able to see? Well, yes. Certainly I've seen photographs and renderings of objects, uh, some jewellery, but particularly objects that he made at the time, 1900 to about 1910, when he was in transition between his career as a jeweller and that as a, a glassmaker. And these transitional objects, some of which are just extraordinary tour de force of, of craftsmanship and design, um, there are far fewer of them that we know exist than those that were manufactured. Now, we have to account for many of them being destroyed over time. Uh, Europe's been through two world wars, um, but we like to think that some of those things are still there. They tend to be made of a combination of materials, glass, metal, perhaps horn, ivory, things like this, enamels, all put together in a manner that can be best described as Renaissance, but is commonly thought of as just the Lalique style, the steel Lalique. So yes, a few of those I would, uh, I'd love to find. Well, thank you. Thanks so much. I, I hope we have a chance to speak again sometime on Louisiana Eats, and in the meantime, We'll keep an eye out for you on Antiques Road Show. We'll be looking for you there. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Monday nights at 8. That was Nick Dawes, author and appraiser for Antiques Road Show, speaking with us in 2016. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. 
Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where over a decade of Louisiana Eats is available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. And don't forget to rate us on your preferred podcast platform. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, Visit the North Shore, and Camellia Beans, celebrating their centennial with an innovative new product, Beans for Two. Camellia's new Red Beans for Two and White Beans for Two include everything needed to cook two authentically seasoned bowls of beans, scaled for today's smaller households. Learn more at CamelliaBrand.com. And from D'Agostino Pasta, celebrating our culture with fleur-de-lis, crawfish, and alligator-shaped pastas. All handcrafted in Louisiana, just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Original theme music composed by David Pomerlow and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, producers Blake Longlinay and Steve Himmelfarb, with writing contributions from Becky Retz, and to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting.